Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Thank you, Dave Slade, and thank you for tuning in to today's Baseball America podcast. Our podcast and our Facebook Live broadcast are sponsored by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids. If you are a baseball fan, you need to check out Baseballism.com or visit the retail locations in Cooperstown, New York, Scottsdale, Arizona, and now open in Atlanta and Chicago. Visit Baseballism.com, enter the code BA2017 to save 20% off, and uh, this is just a podcast, so you can't see our Baseballism gear, but I am trying to rock the flat brim hat today, and I've been told by both younger staff and commenters on Facebook that no, I cannot rock you're, you're, the flat brim. You're, you're, you're too old, dude. You're too old. I, I, that is I, really a shame. I, I, I still go with the way that I preferred wearing it when I was a kid. Which like the starter commercial, they say we rock the hat, then we bend the hat, yeah. then we do this with the hat. That yeah. was that was also me. But uh, I'm trying to throw back to Khalil Green, Khalil Green at Clemson back in 2002. With the he, he was the flapper. He was the dude who told me that he ironed the bill of his cap. You don't have to do that with baseballism hats. So we thank baseballism for the gear, and we thank you for the download. And this is a fun podcast for us. We don't do guests very often, JJ. Um, but this issue of the magazine, the print edition, is our technology issue, and that was is what spurred us to have this guest on. You'll be able to hear uh, to read a curated version of this uh, in the magazine as well. But uh, focus really more on, just on technology and how technology has affected pitching in the game. And but, hitting, uh, and that's the other part of it. That that was what made us think to do this podcast was how has technology affected pitching. I think Kyle Body of Driveline Mechanics really got or Driveline Baseball, I should say. Driveline Baseball, Kyle Bodie. That's it. Kyle Bodie of Kyle of Kyle Bodie of Driveline Baseball has opened my eyes to the fact that technology is affecting hitting as much as it's affecting pitching. It's behind, but it's catching up very rapidly as this is wont to do with technology. Well, and JJ, it's it's a you wound up having the discussion with him. It's a Pretty fascinating discussion because I, I don't I think it went in places that you didn't expect it to go. I, I hoped it would, but it's meaty. I this is I, I really wasn't I enjoyed doing this. Thank you to Kyle. This I think you really got are gonna enjoy this. We went a lot of different directions, but if I could sum it up before we even start it, which is is that when it comes to technology and baseball, one of the big things it does is it okay, I could go really geeky here and talk about the OODA loop and John Boyd and Colonel Boyd and all that, and I won't, but I will say this. It speeds things up. You get feedback quicker than you could without it. That's and the so key. what that allows you to do is because you get that feedback quicker, you can then do things quicker because Just you make of, an adjustment. Think about Tony Gwynn for guys our age. Tony Gwynn was like mocked for taking VCRs around with him in the, in the, in the big leagues. But he was the first guy who really broke down video of hitter, what, his hitting approach and what pitchers were trying to do to him. He got by that the standards of the time, instant feedback, and helped make him an eight-time batting champion. Now, the just like everything from the 80s to now, everything's sped up, and that instant feedback's really making a huge impact on a lot of players. It is, and so now you can make an adjustment, and instead of taking it for a week and seeing how you feel with it, you can get instant data that tells you, no, this is not doing what you hoped it would do. Or, yes, it is. Right. And then, if it is, you can go, okay, well, let me try this. No, that's not working. Let me try this. Yes, that worked. It allows you to do those things in a way. And the other thing about this is, is that because of this, and we didn't really even talk about this in the podcast, but one of the things that stands out is, is that nowadays, a high school kid, there is there's so much more. And a middle school that's kid. That's actually what I wrote about in my column. That there's more sophistication among the amateur players today. Than they used to be. There, there's so much more out there. Like, it's funny. There's a great... They, they play less, but they train a lot more. It's a right. very interesting way but, to go. And the thing about it is, is when you train, it's not... You're no longer limited to just 
the closest resources that you have in the area. Correct. Now you can actually go online. And like Donnie Everett, the great Donnie Everett mm -hmm. story Mike Landa did. Well, his dad was like, I need someone to work with Donnie. Well, Mr. Forney, mm -hmm. Forney Abbott has, has done that with folks in this area for years. And that was awesome. That was one of the, my favorite parts of that story was the connection he had with Mr. Forney. But you don't have to go to the neighborhood guru anymore. You can go to the national gurus. You don't, they don't have to be gurus. There's a lot of information for players well, to digest. Again, now if you want to look at swings, think of how much easier it is now to say, I want to look at the swings of 100 great hitters right. compared to what it would have been when Tony Gwynn was doing this. I, I, mean, send, I send my middle school son videos virtually every week of hitters to watch. So um, it's an interesting discussion. There's not a lot of weighted ball discussion. There's not a lot of the controversial stuff I think driveline baseball gets uh, dinged for um, on Twitter or on social media or on message boards that Kyle often tweets out about Facebook commenters, this kind of thing. This was really a focus on the application of new 21st century technologies on helping players and, get better. And what is not there yet that is still to come. Right. And so that was a crucial part of it. So uh, sit back and enjoy. I got a draft call right before we were supposed to talk to Kyle. So I didn't get a, a chance to mispronounce his name to his face over the phone on this uh, podcast. But J.J. talked to him. So here are J.J. Cooper and Kyle of Driveline Baseball. Thank you, John. And we are happy to be joined right now by Kyle Bodie of Driveline Baseball. And a lot of you who are listening to this podcast know all about Driveline Baseball. But as we start this out, Kyle, to kind of start it off, for someone who doesn't know anything about Driveline could you kind of just explain a little bit about what Driveline does, what Driveline is, and kind of what's kind of the kind of the mission statement of, of what you all do? Yeah, um, you know, we're trying to be basically, you know, data-driven player development. That's basically our motto. So, you know, it's kind of been explained as like the sabermetrics of player development. So really trying to quantify how we actually get guys better, how MLB teams get guys better, um, and just a, kind of a better linkage between the draft and player development. That's, uh, that's what we do for the MLB teams, and internally we work with free agents, uh, indie ball guys, and current affiliate pros to try to improve uh, whatever pitchability side that um, you know they're looking at. If that's more velocity or better command or a better breaking ball, we just try to leverage you know the technology out there and our expertise to really make that happen. Uh, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of our mission. And but now it's not just it's not just pitchers, obviously. That's right. Yeah, we're expanding into hitting. We've um, we, uh, we hired uh, Jason Ochart from Menlo. Uh, you know, one of the great NAI schools that you know just crushes home runs. They have a uh, yeah. Lucas Erceg was there, obviously. Joe Gillette this year. Jordan Getzelman. Um, a lot of great players who have really um, kind of hit a ton of home runs there. Um, and the big thing was, I was really excited when I saw guys like Garrett Gignani, Jordan Getzelman, guys that had a lot of promise as high school people and probably were even mentioned in Baseball America back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, fizzled out in college. And then Jason got them, you know, got them on the right path. And to me, that that's real coaching expertise. And that's what was really exciting for me. Uh, Lucas, great hitter, obviously, at Cal and was great there at uh, Menlo. You know, he didn't make him worse, but... For me, it was like, how can you make a, a middle tools guy or you know a guy that's lost his way get better? And that, that was what was exciting. And so we brought Jason on, and he's done a great job. One of the things that, that stands out to me about what you all do, it is, as you said, it's very data-driven. But at the core uh, of all of it, I mean, I pardon the pun, but stronger players, I mean, you, it's basically a, a very, there's a lot of other things, too. I don't want to oversimplify it, but... Strength is, as as you put it, a a, a very key part uh, of being a successful baseball player. I, I like, you know, there's a lot of, if you, you go to y'all's site, there's a lot of research on there. There's a lot of data-driven stuff. But one of the things you point out is, okay, so let's look at the uh, the, the the best home run hitters. There are no, you know, it, we, there are no small, skinny guys among those anymore. Uh, it just, this is not the 1970s anymore. But, I, but what stands out, you know, I, again, it's a very data-driven approach is, is that, when you're talking about a skinny 14-year-old or you're talking about a, a reasonably already maxed out 24-year-old, you all take a very different approach when you just talk about the building blocks of, of weight training and all. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things that go into that depending on who you are and really kind of where you are in your training process. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, no, no question. And it's, about, it's not just about picking up weights here or there. Uh, it's about... Trying to figure out, you know, what, where the person is lacking. You can have a guy that, you know, squats and deadlifts and moves some real heavy weight around, uh, but is lacking in the explosive areas that make him, you know, a great rotational athlete. The guy that hits a lot of home runs, the guy that throws 
you know, with premium velocity. Um, and so it's about identifying those factors and how we can really use, you know, technology that we have to really identify those areas. It really just makes it more efficient. You know, it's not much a, it's not using technology and, and nerd stuff for the sake of using it. Uh, it's using it just to get better clarity so we can cut the athlete's training time down significantly. Uh, and we can get them on the field uh, much faster, see gains a lot faster. And so the person's not, you know, wasting his time. And that's, that's the big thing of what we're looking for. And that's why technology is so useful at driveline. But it's also using the tech to kind of determine even kind of, okay, this is no, okay, now this is, we've, we, we've got to cut back. You're, you're at the, you're at your kind of max on this. Or no, you actually have more room here. Or, you know, the recover, determining recovery time. It, it, there's a lot of areas where that data kind of comes into play, is it not? Absolutely. You know, that's, that's such a huge factor for a lot of our guys. Um, so many of them are so used to pushing the pedal to the metal um, and just not addressing their strengths. You know, there's stuff that they pitch away from their strengths or they do some stuff that, you know, they, they focus so much on their weaknesses that they overtrain themselves. And so it's, it's a big factor for us that we really need to manage their load throughout the season. You know, 162-game season in the big leagues and 140, 150-plus in the minors is tough no matter what. So it's about making sure they're good, as good as they are game one, as good as they can be on game 162. And one of the things kind of reading y'all's research that jumps out, though, is, is that when you take someone who hasn't really spent a lot of time working out, you know, who's kind of, they have, you know, who's not near, as you, as you all put it, kind of your genetic max as far as where you, because everyone has a limit pretty much as far as how much you can do. But those are the guys who can see massive gains. But it, it jumps out to me that it's often the, the guy who's actually already lifting and already done, you know, a good bit of weight training and all. It's finding how to get that guy who already is kind of closer to his limits, the the work that he needs is often kind of can be the difference between a guy kind of making it where he wants to go and, and not making it to where he wants to go. No doubt, yeah. Someone who's already at their limits, you know, and that's the big thing. The closer you get to that genetic limit, you know, the risk of injury goes up. Uh, it can really be no other way. Like if you're maximizing performance for your, your current frame and your body, um, that's when, you know, you're starting to push that edge of what's possible with your body. Uh, and, you know, we see that with guys like Noah Syndergaard, great pitcher, um, you know, adding a ton of muscle on and trying to pack on more and trying to throw harder. Obviously, we've known each other long, you know, but I love guys that throw hard. Yes, but, um, you, you know, like velocity. No doubt. I mean, it's just, it's the part of the game, you know, and it's, um, it's but maybe for a guy like Noah, maybe that wasn't the best approach. I'm not, you know, trying to condemn him or criticize him, but, you know, for a guy like Noah, if he just throws 200 innings, he's going to be heck of a pitcher for 10 years plus, you know, and so it's about making sure we address that right with those guys, um, and, you know, and we get a lot of 27, 28-year-old guys who maybe have been in indie ball, maybe were a big double-A prospect, a guy like Trey McDonough, Casey Weathers, and those guys are in great physical shape, you know, but their body's banged up with surgeries, and so then how we approach them is so much different than how we're going to approach a 15-year-old, and it's about understanding that continuum. So let's talk a little bit about this tech, okay, kind of when you started doing driveline, what were kind of the the core uh, pieces of tech that were that were vital kind of to get this going? I would have, I assume a stalker is part of that, but you know what was kind of the basics as you got started? You know, I actually, you know what? Before we do that, I do want people to understand a little bit. If you explain a little bit of kind of your background, kind of how did you get into what? Where did the idea of driveline kind of come from? Yeah, uh, my background is not very glamorous. Uh, I was a terrible baseball player growing up. Uh, and uh, really, just no baseball background to speak of. I studied economics in college, um, my uh, computer science a little bit. My um, my expertise or my interest in the game came from a really cliche moment. Honestly, I was coaching little league uh, as something to do. I moved out to Seattle, uh, and I wanted um, to just have a better way. I'm like, there's got to be a better way to coach kids than you know just yelling at them or reading a book or you know doing the same stuff that I was taught when I was a kid. I'm like, there's got to be you know, there has to be some answers. So I, you know, I actually read a lot of medical journals, bought tons of books on pitching from all the gurus out there, read everything by Tom House, read everything I could, um, and uh, really found out that really no one was taking a really scientific or a data-driven method to approaching baseball. And so I said, you know, there's, it's kind of crazy. You look at how science is done, and today we take it for granted with StatCast and how baseball is talked about today on TV. But, you know, you, you of all people can definitely remember 12 years ago, 10 years ago, it's not, it's not how we were talking about baseball at all, right? You know, the soccer was the only piece of equipment that was really advanced that people were using. Um, and so it was such a different time back then. So we experimented with a ton of different stuff from track and field, a bunch of other things. And, you know, the only clients we got at the beginning were a lot of younger kids, 
So it's about developing those kids safely. And then we started to get some guys that were hurt. And so how do we rehab guys? So the, the entire premise of driveline to begin with was actually, you know, keeping guys healthy. It wasn't about getting them throwing harder. It was about making sure they could pitch consistently for a long period of time. And so that, that's the beginning of it, and that's always the underpinning of what we do. So one of the things that obviously stands out that nowadays what you can do is, you know, the, the slow-motion camera technology has improved in the time that you all have a driveline. There, you know, now, you know, with RevSoto and all, you can – there. Are, what can you do now, I guess would be the question, that you couldn't do when, you know, that just the, the technology didn't exist yet when, when kind of you guys got started? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing is just instant feedback from pieces of technology, whether it's the modus sleeve to be able to capture just the basic biomechanics that we can make changes on the fly, or RevSoto, like you mentioned. Uh, it's such a great training tool. So many major league teams are using it in favor of TrackMan in their bullpens because it's just so much faster. So we can really say now, like, say someone throws a slider. Um, when we had, like, we were working with Tony Singrani up here, Brandon McCarthy when he was here, and he could say, okay, my changeup, I want it to have this kind of spin axis. This is what I, I want my changeup to do this. I want it to break down into the right, you know, or whatever. And so then we could say, okay, this is the, these are the parameters that will make that happen based on what we understand from Fangraphs, Sabermetrics, Dr. Alan Nathan. So then we can start to take that stuff that's written online and actually blend it to the player development, make it real for the player, rather than something they read about. Mm -hmm. And so then they can say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess around with this feeling, I'm gonna position my hand here, and let's see how that works. Okay, did that work? No, alright, let's try this, let's try this. So it's about, it's the same stuff pitching coaches have been doing for 200 years, but with feedback that's much more objective, rather than a catcher back there saying like, oh yeah, that was a good one, or that wasn't so good. So we can say like, we can definitively say, okay Brandon, you're on the right path, this is, this is where we wanna go. Uh, in Brandon's case, he really wanted to refine his cutter and his sinker, and he wanted to find out, you know, why his curveball was having the action it was. And so being able to show him that high-speed video and being able to show him the data from TrackMan or Rapsodo, it just made it so much faster. Brandon got it so fast because he's obviously such a tenured big leaguer that he, he was able to make a change real quick. Well, and so for a guy like that, that's where it's valuable. For the guy in college, you know, for the guys in North Carolina that use our stuff, you know, J.B. Pekowskis and Austin Bergner, those guys, those are, you know, high-field guys, big draft guys, but, you know, they're going to have to make a lot of changes. They're going to have to make a lot of improvements, you know, to pitch at the level they want to. And so to have that technology available there at North Carolina um, is, is valuable for the amateurs, too. Well, kind of with that, like with the high-speed cameras, the thing that stands out with that a lot is not just that you see how the ball, you know, spins and kind of that, which you're also getting from the Repsoto, but, but beyond that, like, I, I've read on some of y'all's, you know, reports and all that, that, that there are some, you can sometimes see with fingers like okay how that ball is actually releasing is not how you intend it to correct like oh wait i've got to really focus on finger pressure here because this finger is almost dragging a little bit or, or you can get really granular with it in a way that no question it would have been yeah, impossible no, 15 years ago no yeah no doubt that's that's such a huge thing and you know a great example of that is a guy named kid named peter bear you know signed for five grand out of the race he transferred uh and he's you know he's killing it and he's in bowling grand Pitching really well, striking out a ton of guys. Um, his spin rate is off the charts. You know, his fastball is almost up to 3,000 RPM. It's faster than I think anybody in the big leagues. And um, it was such a big thing for him to be drafted because, you know, I had multiple teams asking for that information. And I said, this guy has, you know, his fastball is only 90-94, which today is nothing. You know, but I said, and now it's now it's 92-96. But still, it's just like his, his spin rate's unreal. You know, you just take a flyer on this guy, call a senior, give him a shot. Um, and it turns out that that translated really well. So, and for him, it was about showing that finger pressure. He was cutting the ball, so he had the command issues doing that. So he could stay behind the ball a little bit better. Uh, had a good year. Cal Poly walked a lot of guys. You know, had a command kind of command flag on him in the draft. Gets the pro ball, and you know he's barely walking anybody. And it's for this because he's made adjustments on the fly from having that video. And so it's it's so valuable for guys like that. In an alternate universe, Peter's working in an office somewhere. He's not playing pro ball. So kind of with that, like, I mean, with that spin rate is something that fascinates me. And one of the things that fascinates me about is how does, because, I mean, you've kind of shown some of y'all, you know, there's a certain amount of spin rate that kind of generally is tied to velocity, correct? For the fastball, the harder you throw, generally you're going to have more RPMs. Is that yep. accurate? Yeah, that's, yep, that's definitely unfair to say. So what is the difference? Why can Peter get extra RPMs on his fastball compared to the average guy? Or why do some guys have a really low RPM fastball for the velocity that they're throwing? <laughs> and that's the great unknown question. You know, we know we know how to reduce spin rate. We know how to, you know, and that's no different than just throwing a changeup or a sinker, you know, turn the ball over, hold the ball deeper in the palm. Uh, but we have been really unsuccessful on figuring out how to increase spin rate. I mean, there's 
one real easy way to do it, which is to use firm grip or pine tar, but that's illegal, so <laughs> we can't do that. Um, so, you know, what what actually makes it um, makes it possible? And that's such an interesting question, right? Because we have all this technology that can give you the angular velocities of the arm and how fast the arm moves and where it is, and yet, despite all that, we don't we don't yet know. And so, that's a big question we're trying to answer this summer. And um, I think it's definitely super interesting. So, when I hear players like Phil Hughes recently talked about trying to increase the spin rate of his fastball, I see how. Lots of luck, man. You know, we've been we've been trying to figure that out for a couple of years now. That, that's one of the holy grail questions right now, isn't it? Because if no, you can no figure doubt. that out, that's no doubt. We have yeah, we have a contract with the team, and they they're drafting players, they're drafting guys in rounds thirty to forty. You know, solely based on TrackMan data, they're finding from perfect game events, and but his spin rate's really good. Let's draft them, put them in a velocity program. Let's see if we can make them useful. And for them, you know, that kid's happy to be drafted. He'll sign for a thousand bucks. He's going to come in, and he's not even going to pitch in the AZL yet. He's going to try. You know, he's going to put him through this program. If it works out for him, great. If it doesn't, you know, the team tries to learn something out of it. Um, but it's, it's such an interesting thing. It's, a, it's another stat that I think guys are going to get, start to, you know, get looked at. And, um, yeah, do, I, I think it's super interesting. Do you think that RPM is an indicator of potential increased velocity to come? I mean, is that, does that, are there, is, I mean, again, there's a relationship there, but could that be kind of sometimes maybe an early indicator? You know, that's so interesting because the guys that, all the guys that throw 100 miles an hour don't have high spin, like high relative to right. everybody else. So what is it? Maybe it's a reverse indicator. Maybe if you spin it really good, you're already so efficient that all the, all the energy is being transferred into spin rate. You know, I think a leading theory out there, which I think has a lot of merit, is that you either can generate spin rate or velocity. Like you can either have plus plus spin rate or plus plus velocity. Like if you can't have both. So you can't throw 97 and have like 3000 RPM, but you can do one of the two. Um, so I think it's a fairly interesting way to kind of study it and what leads to that. And that's a whole other, you know, two-hour conversation. That it, but, uh, that's yeah. a two-hour, uh, but that kind of leads into the other one, which is is that because at the core of what you all do on the pitching side also is, is okay, what, <laughs> what, not what is velocity. We know what velocity is, but how is how does velocity, how do you get velocity? You know, because that's a, a key part to, a, let's be honest, a key part to a successful pitcher, you know, is I don't care how well you pitch at 80, you're pitching at 80. Whereas there's a lot more margin of error if you're pitching at 98. And that's obviously the extremes. But but that's also the holy grail, isn't it? I mean, guys do it very different ways. Guys do it with very different bodies. Some guys do it with, you know, there are some core tenets that anyone that throws really hard has. But it's not easy to answer that question of what means that this guy can throw 95 and this guy can't, isn't it? Is that fair? No, yeah, no doubt, right? I mean, great example, two relievers right now throwing 100. They couldn't look more different. you got Aroldis Chapman and you got Joe Kelly, right? They couldn't literally exact opposites, right, in every in every regard. And um, so it's, it's super interesting to figure out why. Um, and I think they all they all share the same same traits, right? They all have really good lower body power. It doesn't mean they have to be huge, but they use the ground well. And they, all, they rotate really fast. You know, they're all able to turn their trunk really quick, and Joe Kelly is such a great example of that. Uh, but how do we develop that in an, any, any given individual, right? Because every, the way that they exp- – there's a lot of different ways to throw. Even even adjusting for body types, there's a lot of different ways to throw 95. You know, it, it could be maybe you're more of a linear pitcher than a rotational pitcher, and that's the stuff that really technology brings out. You know, you could say, okay, this is, this is what makes you really good. These are the training methods that will help based on what we've seen over hundreds and hundreds of pitchers. Let's go with this rather than everybody's got a long toss. Everybody's got to lift weights. Everybody's got to throw weighted balls. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not it. That's not what we stand for. It's about trying to figure out what works for each person and kind of personalize from there. Well, especially kind of with that is, is that pitchers are so different. I mean, there's, you can have two six foot four pitchers who, six foot four, 220, and one's arms can be four inches longer than the other. One can be, you know, I know that you all talk about internal rotation versus external rotation. There's, there are so many differences from player to player that it, it's very hard to generalize about much of anything, is it not? No doubt, yeah. It's about screening them, bringing them in, and just treating them, you know, like an individual person. You know, we had a guy, you know, the perfect power pitcher frame, you know, he's like a Tyler Glass now. He comes in here, he doesn't even look like a baseball player. He looks like a decathlete. Okay. For a guy like that, it's pretty simple. You know, like he's such a high-skilled pitcher that we don't really need to do anything with him. He just needs to stay healthy, and here's how we would address that, and he needs to throw strikes. Okay, so this is the stuff that we would do to work on that. And then you got a guy like Trevor Bauer, you know, who's six foot whatever. 
you know, who's not a good athlete, doesn't have a really good vertical jump, and it's how, how does he throw 95, you know? And so it's a different it's, – it's interesting how do you kind of go here or there or how do you work with a guy that's 30 years old or 29 like a Ryan Buckter, who was a rookie last year, 27 years old with the Padres. You know, how does he go from, you know, throwing whatever to spending a ton of time in AA and AAA to finally breaking out and having a really good year? Probably should have been an all-star. You know, so, like, how does that – how does that work for each guy? And age is such a big factor. If they're 16 or 18 or 21, they can tolerate so much different stuff than if they're 27. If they've had surgery, it's different. Like when we work with Walker Bueller, it looks a lot different than when we work with a guy that's 27 and has a lot of time. Um, so it's just such a, it's such an interesting thing. You know, it goes anywhere. And that's, and technology is the best way to kind of, kind of sort that out and make sure that you're addressing each person's needs individually. Along along those lines, you mentioned Walker. It was fun watching him pitch in spring training, and it's like, now wait a second. This is <laughs> the guy I, you know, the guy we saw in college was really good. The guy we're seeing now is is better than the guy we saw in college, and you know, it, it's noticeable. I mean, it's something where I, think, I don't remember him sitting ninety seven, um, no. you know, and now that's not, you know, I mean, that's that's you know, that's kind of more where he is, which is amazing, but. Um, yeah, a lot of it's health. You know, Walker in college was, he was managing an elbow issue the whole time, you know, and so for him, finally having Tommy John surgery, people see it as, a, as an downside. Oh no, Walker's going to have Tommy John, he's going to come back, he's going to have a long recovery time, because that does happen to guys. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, when Walker comes back, he was plenty effective at Vanderbilt. When he comes back, and if his elbow's good, and I know Walker, he's he's determined. You know, and he comes back, he's going to be 97. He's going to be a guy that has that great command he always has with great stuff. And I said, when his elbow's right, I mean, you better watch out. He's going to be good. I told teams this. I was working for two teams at the time, and they were afraid because you needed Tommy John. I said, you're not looking at it the right way. You're looking at a guy that's been dealing with this for two years, and just imagine when he is healthy. And you see what he's doing now. It's crazy. What is the tech that doesn't exist yet that will help you do what you do? Is there a piece of something of technology that if you had it, you'd be able to answer a question that you can't answer right yet? Yeah, uh, kind of a wearable. The modus leave is a great start. You know, but like a, a multi-sensor system that you could wear that's non-intrusive that really tells you the biomechanics of the pitcher right as you throw it, right? He throws the pitch, five seconds later it's on a computer and it says, here's his internal rotation, external rotation, here's what it was on this pitch, um, and it just gives instant feedback. You know, if we had that, that would be just huge. We would pay almost anything for that. Um, and so that that's the biggest piece of tech that I think would help not only us, but MLB would start to answer a lot of questions. Maybe they could wear it in games, maybe in the minor leagues, maybe in the Arizona Fall League, maybe Instructs. But you could start collecting full biomechanics data in games at competitive velocities uh, and start building a database. Yeah, I think I think we're getting there. You know, it's, it'll be a couple years, but uh, that, that would be the biggest piece of tech that I think would be a real game changer. <laughs> the fascinating part about that is, is that would open up so many opportunities, but also so many questions. Because... That would be, I mean, the other thing that would jump out about that is is that that would seem to be so helpful as far as injury prevention because, you know, there's so often you see now with a guy, you know, you, you, we, there, there's almost the cliche of a guy who has a minor injury of some sort and then the compensation for that means he gets out of his normal delivery. You know, things cascade from that. And you, it would be, you know, it would be much easier to tell very quickly whether a guy is kind of in his normal form or not because you'd have the data. At the same time, <laughs> you got to be very careful about, you know, does the player own that data? Does the team own that data? Do they have to share it? Does that, you know, there's, that that would become fascinating in a, in a whole lot of ways because there's so much that you could get out of that, is there not? Yeah, we're going to see that battle real soon. We're already starting to see it a little bit with spin rates and those those. Those stats being used on a daily basis, I know the union is definitely starting to think about that. Um, and who owns those stats? I mean, just something like spin rate. You know, who owns that? Right? It's crazy to think about that. That's a question we've never had to ask. Uh, but definitely, if you know, elbow torque, or if we can actually start to measure that stuff, that'll be some interesting stuff. And that, that's something that I think not only the, the union's on top of it. I know that for sure. Mm-hmm. They're, they're starting to they're starting to prepare for that battle. Uh, but that's something that the agents need to think about, right? Like, okay, who's going to wear this stuff? Who's going to give it up? Should this player pitch in perfect game events? If he pitches here, his track man data, his exit speed is going to be recorded. Is that something that we want to do? Right? Is that something that makes sense for our potential first-round guy? It's, got, it's stuff that, like, I think that agents are really going to have to start thinking about, and that's where I think they're going to be left behind. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'm most worried about with these kids, is not having representation that, you know, makes sense on how MLB teams evaluate guys. Because we know when MLB teams and scouts evaluate guys and it's a different information platform, if they know a lot more or the way that they're going about it than the kids and the agents know, 
Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous territory for both sides. And so that's something that I think we're going to see come to a head here real soon. And, and that's something where, I mean, that's on the agent side, that is something that's difficult to keep up with because it changes so quickly. No doubt. Yeah, you almost have to have a dedicated person. You know, it's just two of the biggest agencies I know have hired internal sabermetrics guys and, um, and a health guy that are just doing health stats. That's all they do. And they're just, you know, making sure that, you know, they're sending these guys, make sure they're approached correctly. And some teams are good about it. Some teams aren't, obviously. You know, we don't need to go into the details. But, you know, the agencies, <clears throat> the smart ones are starting to really look into it and get ahead of the curve. And uh, no doubt that it's the biggest ones, obviously, if you see. Uh, okay. Take that further. You, you know, you said, like, if you had something wearable that could basically give a lot more data than we can per- currently have, take that a step further. If down the road we had wearables that basically could record you know, quality of sleep, uh, you know, quality of nutrition, all that. <laughs> it really, that would allow steps forward as well, would it not? But at the same time, that would even be further down that slippery slope of, okay, how far do you go? Because yeah. recovery, I mean, that's one of the things with recovery is, is that uh, one guy could get six, you know, six hours of great sleep. One guy could get nine hours, but have terrible, you know, sleep and is that, you know, is the guy who got nine hours actually doing better as far as recovery than the guy who got six? You know, there's a lot of questions. I, again, I don't, that's beyond me about knowing the answer to that question, but there's a lot of stuff out there that is still available to, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of questions that still are out there to be answered, it would seem. Yeah, there's, and some teams are already looking into that. You know, when we were working with the Dodgers, they were already starting to look into heart rate variability and things like Omega Wave and, and things like that. But there are wearables that are less intrusive, like the Whoop Band, you know, Josh Donaldson, a, a number of major league players use it. And it measures quality of sleep and, you know, a number of steps they take and exertion and stuff like that. And if you drink a lot, you know, drink a lot of alcohol and go to sleep, it can actually tell that, that your quality of sleep is not that great. Um, but So that's great if Josh Donaldson wants to use it. But what right. if the entirety of the Blue Jays wants, uh, you know, uh, you know, the need to wear it? Right? Um, who owns that data? Right? And so we're already, we're already starting to see that. You know, and that we're already and, starting to see those battles. And, uh, okay, hey, it's, it's in your best interest. If you wear this, we'll know that we won't pitch you that long. But hey, now the team knows that you're not getting the sleep, you're not taking recovery that seriously. Or maybe it's not even your fault. Maybe it's genetic, right? And so does the team, is they, are they more apt to release you, trade you, you know, not promote you to double A? Those are the things that are, we're gonna, we're gonna see those battles play very soon. Well, and, and especially you just hit on the, the key aspect of this, which is, is that, when you come to the big league level, that is you have two relatively equal sides hashing this out because right. you have the union and you have the owners. You know, and then so when you get to the minor league side, <laughs> you know, when you say, okay, how we're, you know, a theoretical high A team is being told to wear this. Well, there's no two sides there that really have a, a say on this. It's you have the one side that says wear this. And you have the individual who has to answer the question, would have to answer the question, I don't think I want to do this. Well, what do I do? I can be released or I can say yes without there, because there's no one out there to collectively bargain to say no, correct? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're the Dodgers and you're trying to do that, not saying they are, but, you know, try to do it to Great Lakes or whatever, Rancho. Um, Guy like Walker Bueller, he could just call up Excel Sports Management, right? And say, like, this is what they're getting me to do. Casey Close can get on the phone. You know, we're not doing that. But anybody else that didn't sign for $2 million, it's going to be rough, right? So, I mean, so, I was going to say, if you did that yeah. with the DSL Dodgers or the DSL Angels or take pick whatever team, Absolutely. there aren't a whole lot of guys there who are going to feel real comfortable saying no. No doubt. And so, you know, the team. I think then the teams are trying to figure out the best way to go about it. You know, with the Astros, I think they do a good job of it. This year in West Palm, they had uh, all the hitters were wearing the blast motion sensors, you know, bad motion sensors that can detect that. And a guy like Jeff Albert does such a great job. He's the minor league coordinator for hitting. And he can say, like, hey, we're not using this data to try to release you. This this gives me an ability to give you a personalized program. We're trying to hit the ball in the air. We're trying to hit line drives, and this is what I want to do. And you, if you can make that case to a player and say, we're not just collecting this data. You know, we're using it to get you better and actually show that you can. Now the players are all on board. You know, they all want to get better, right? So it's about that personal relationship. It goes back just goes back 20, 30, 50 years ago. I mean, just not even talking about technology, but it's about just being able to be a good coach, right? This technology doesn't make you a good coach. You still have to be able to connect with the player. You still have to be able to coach him. The player has to be responsive, and the scout has to be good at getting those intangibles. To me, those old-school, quote-unquote, intangibles and coachability are are so more important today than they were 30 years ago because the game's much harder. You know, the skill's much higher. The ability to use a ton of technologies here and so how that kid's going to respond to that kind of environment is, is huge. 
And so that's, to me, the old school scouting guy um, is more valuable today than he ever has been. I, I, really, I truly believe that. Well, okay, that gets into to hitting. Like I said, you guys are working on hitting now as well. I, from the outside, I kind of feel like hitting is about five to ten years behind pitching as far as where it is in kind of the the, the marriage of, of data and, to, and training. It, am, am I off or is there, you know, is it kind of catching, trying to catch up to kind of, I, I feel like that, the last decade has been kind of an explosion as far as pitching when it comes to ways to train, ways to, you know, to get better. I mean, it's not like weighted balls were invented in the last 10 years, but it's something where you see them a lot more. I mean, 10 years ago, there were very few teams that would allow long toss, uh, you know, at the, at the, so, but with hitting, I, it seems like, I feel like that we're, we're, we're getting there, but it's the idea of kind of retooling to improve based on data, uh, it feels like we're just kind of, I mean, I'm not cresting the wave yet, but we're kind of getting there. Is where, where do you see it? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think if you asked me this question last year, I would have said probably 20 years behind. But uh, things are changing really fast. Now, in baseball, in a traditionally slow-moving sport, in the last 10 years, there's been more change than in the last, you know, the previous 90 when it comes to player development. Um, and really, it's all happened in the last two to three, and it's really fast. Um, it's pretty amazing. On the hitting side, you see guys like who have who are making these changes almost overnight in the big leagues. It's insane to see a Ryan Zimmerman go from perennial, you know, potential MVP candidate when he was breaking into the league to injured and having issues to being a pretty good role player to now being the best hitter in baseball, essentially, or one of the best, is is amazing. And it's because he talks to guys like Justin Turner and starts listening to stuff like Josh Donaldson, and it goes counter to what he's always been taught. He said, "Oh, you know." Ryan Zimmerman has always been able to hit the ball really hard. It's never been his problem. But his profile is such that he hit a ton of ground balls. And today's game, with the defense being so good and the shifts being so prevalent, it's not going to work. So Ryan made quick changes and, shoot, he's, he's hit 10 home runs, I believe, so far. And it's crazy that that stuff can take take hold. Because all it takes is a guy like Josh Donaldson from being from a guy who's had his name misspelled in a trade as John Donaldson <laughs> to a guy being winning the MVP. I go, wait a minute. How's that happen? How does he do it? And Josh is obviously no... No stranger to the microphone. He's willing to talk, you know, um, about his experiences and how he's done it. And so once that gets in a pro guy's mind, they start thinking, okay, all right, that makes sense. Um, and so we're starting to see that. So I think while hitting is, you know, anywhere between 5 and 15 years behind, um, absolutely, I agree. But I think it's going to catch up in about two to three years, and we're going to see it fast. Cool. Hitting coaches are being hired out of colleges. Hitting coaches are being hired um, – because of their experience with technology and understanding that stuff. And that's something you wouldn't have seen even two years ago. Well, with that, how, how does the technology, just to explain it to someone who, who may not understand it, how does the technology allow a Ryan Zimmerman, a Josh Donaldson, how does that help them retool their swing, I mean, significantly and often in a, in a pretty short period of time? Yeah, so, you know, with StatCast, you can see the exit velocity and the launch angles of any batted ball for, for anybody. You can go on uh, Darren Willman's site or, you know, Baseball Savants and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so, but that doesn't help. To me, like, that's always been my biggest complaint for the last 10 years. The existence of baseball perspectives and fan graphs and that stuff doesn't help the players. Like, all you're doing is writing about what makes the game, what makes players good. Right, And the players don't care about that. The players care about how. How mm-hmm. do I do that? Okay, great. So you've told me that I don't walk enough. Wonderful. So you're going to tell me how I can walk more, and you know those teams don't have that. They don't. They don't. The websites don't have that information, and so neither does baseball savant. Right? It says here's the exit velocity and launch angle. What really helps is like a, a hitting coach that understands that and maybe has something like hit tracks, like something that can actually mm-hmm. track exit velocity over time, or a bat sensor that can track approach angle that you know actually factors into how you're hitting. And so Ryan Zimmerman, a guy like him, he can make a change real quick because uh, he's such a gifted athlete. But maybe for a college guy that's an okay hitter uh, that you know has just made radical changes in his game, Brent Rooker's a great example. He's a guy that's always been a pretty decent hitter to a guy that's really focused on launch angle. I know his off-season coach, you know, I don't really want to out him and say who it is, but his off-season coach is like, this doesn't make any sense. You're killing the ball, you're a great athlete. We've got to hit the ball in the air. Rooker's got, I think, 18 home runs now. Yes. Right? And it's about a guy like using that technology and using that understanding like, okay, so for Rooker, he's like, oh, I want you to try this. Try this feel. Try this swing pattern. Did that work? No, that doesn't feel good. Okay, let's try something else. We're all monitoring that on a regular basis. And a guy like Brent Rooker hitting 18 home runs and just killing the SEC, it's not random. 
right? Like that's, you're going to start seeing more of that every single day. Vanderbilt's been doing it with pitchers for the last 10 years, right? So we're going to start seeing it with hitters for sure. Well, the thing that stands out to me about that is, is that it's easier for a hitter to make dramatic adjustments. I mean, as a pitcher, you can, you can adjust, but the muscle memory that you have to fight through as a pitcher, and maybe I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, but is different than hitters are used to making adjustments to their swing on a, re, you know, on, on a more regular basis. I mean, the, the way a pitcher pitches, if a guy's over the top, a lot of guys are not going to be real comfortable saying, okay, now let me try to go, you know, go low three quarters. Some guys, that's their natural slot and they can do it. But other guys, or, you know, hey, your crossfire, let's straighten you out. It, that takes a lot of work to get through where a, a guy who, again, is already showing that he has the ability to hit the ball hard, but the approach angle on his swing means that he's hitting it down too often. Adjusting that to say, okay, I'm going to get hit the ball in the air, is that a little easier to do than trying to really rework a pitcher? Oh, 100%. Totally agree. You know, it all has to do with the weight of what's being done. You know, baseball, you're throwing a five-ounce ball, and the margin for error is so fine, right? And I feel, um, you know, hitters don't get the yips, right, when they're hitting. That doesn't happen. Pitchers get the yips all the time, right? Just, you know, Eric Keel, Cody Bikel, whatever. They're just throwing the ball all over the place. It happens. Um, and that's because it's such a fine instrument. With the bat, it weighs, you know, it weighs a lot. So it's easier to make a change. Um, it's easier to make a drastic change on the hitting side or even a small change um, without, you know, totally screwing yourself up. Um, and no doubt that that's, that's right for the right for the picking. And I think you're going to see, I mean, it's going to be an explosion over the next couple of years, right? You have sabermetrics and, and the math of the game really saying the way that the game is structured is that strikeouts don't matter that much as long as you're hitting for a lot of power and walking. But that doesn't really help the guy you know, unless you can really train him to do those things. And now we're starting to see, okay, this is how we can slug more. The game is so based around throwing fastballs down in the zone. Unfortunately, the easiest way to counter that is exactly what hitters are doing, which is having more of an uppercut swing, right? And so the game will adjust back. But pitchers are – and that's harder to adjust for a pitcher. If you're always taught for 20 years to pound the bottom of the zone with a two-seam fastball, that's going to be hard to make a change to throw four seams up in the zone. You've never had that kind of command, right? You've always been that guy that throws the ball down. Um, and so the hitters, I think, are going to start. You're going to start seeing just more and more guys that hit bombs uh, over the next couple of years while ball pitchers adjust. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. The other thing with that is, is that gets us back to pitchers. We've seen kind of a, a steady, very steady increase in velocity in the game. It's every conversation I have with the scout. You know, I was having a conversation today. It's like, you know, when we're talking about college guys who are 94, 95, but yeah, they're not. They're only okay. I don't even know. You know, if they'll go top 15 rounds and which is something that 10, 15 years ago, you would not be ever saying that because 95, 94, 96 was, you know, it didn't really matter almost anything else. If you had that kind of velocity, you had potential because 94, 96 was, was rare. But with pitcher velocity, you know, we've seen this steady increase, but there's also been studies and there's been much talk of, okay, there is a natural limit. There's a limit, you know, with the ligaments and all as far as how hard people can actually throw. Are we going to, at some point hit a uh, kind of a, a plateau with that where it's okay, you're going to see more guys get to the number, but there, there's going to be, uh, you know, a, a kind of a limit? Or do you think there is still, are we going to, if we're talking 10 years from now, which means both of us are, are even older, but uh, are we going to be talking about, you know, okay, well, he's 105, but, uh, you know, so it's okay. Is that? <laughs> no, I think, I think we've kind of hit. Uh, you know, I could regret this in 10 years or five years, but I think I agree with you. I think we've hit a limit. Um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of guys eclipsing Chapman or Carter Capps or, you know, a few guys that really do throw in that rarefied air. I think you'll see more guys throwing that hard. I think you'll see more guys like Joe we Kelly. S- we see Kelly. that now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're going to see more guys in throwing in the 100s, but, um, I don't think you're going to see guys starting in the 110s and 115s. I just, <laughs> we haven't ever seen it, so I just don't think it's going to occur. I, then again, I could be totally wrong. Uh, I just think you're going to see velocity is going to continue to go up. The average velocity in 10 years could comfortably say will be 95. Um, and you, you just see today, if you if there's a college right-hander coming out of the bullpen in the big leagues, he's 24, 25 years old, he's 95-plus. He's not 90-92. You know, he is consistent. He's 95-plus. Or if he is 92, he has the best slider in the game. Right. If you're 90, I mean, and people, some people get angry about this because they think it's de-emphasizing the ability to pitch. But the reality of this is, if you're 90, 92 nowadays in the in the pro game, you better have something else that is at least plus, but if not plus plus, or maybe two yep. secondary offerings that are that are plus. Because 
You are otherwise, I, I don't care how well you dot, you are fighting an uphill battle. Absolutely. Yeah, and they just don't trust teams don't just just don't trust minor league success at the lower velocities. And and with good with good reason. People come up and they often rely on that secondary pitch that doesn't that doesn't always translate. The example I always use is Wade the Block. You know, he's got a minus to minus minus fastball, um, and a plus to plus plus change potentially one of the best changeups of all time as a lefty. Um, and he's just killing it, right? How many lefties have a really, really good changeup, right? And so to see a guy like that, you know, he would just punch tickets to AAA, just kill it, and then come up to the big leagues, and the, you know, the big league hitters are just sitting on his fastball in 86, right? So, like, those, you see a lot of guys in the minors who have a lot of success, and I think they're really frustrated. Um, and we work with, uh, you know, we work with a guy like uh, Sam Gaviglio. Great, mm-hmm. great command, right? Plus the plus plus command in AAA here. But, you know, Gaviglio is an uh, 86 to 89 guy. You know, and he's great. He gets everybody out, right? But Gaviglio is not really ticketed for the big leagues unless, you know, his velocity ticks up a little bit. Um, and he's kind of come around to understanding that a little bit. Um, and those, that's, that's just the nature of the game. And so it's not that I love velocity necessarily. But you do love velocity. velocity. All right. You got me. But it's, it's the teams, it's responding to the team's impulses, right? Just like we said, every, every righty that comes out of the bullpen is 95 plus. If they're, if they're 24, 25 years old, that's, that's how it is. Well, um, so I talked to JUCO coaches important. who use y'all stuff. And I mean, you have JUCO teams now that have, you know, 90, 93, 94, 95. You know, it's not one guy on the staff. I mean, it's multiple because that's where the game is at now. No doubt, no doubt. And we have a kid just, you covered him last year, Herbie Good at mm-hmm. College of Southern Nevada. You know, one inning, a couple outings ago, he was just holding 97. And uh, guys are like, this is crazy. It's like, that's the new part of the game now. That's where we're going. You know, like a junior called Yavapai in central Arizona, these powerhouses, it's, it's no surprise that these are the guys that are turning out just, just dudes. Uh, that happens. Well, along those lines also, I mean, you, you guys have studied this. I mean, this is one of the things that, when I say that you love velocity, you guys have studied, you know, the relationship between velocity and success at the big league level. And <laughs> what have you found? Oh, yes. No, no shock that velocity is the single best determinant. I mean, there is no, there's no other way. And the draft just, the draft re- reflects that, you know, as you know, putting the draft board together. You won't see, if you see a righty that's sitting 90 taken in the first 30 picks, his name is Thomas Eshelman, right? It's like those guys with just like crazy plus plus command type, you know, type thing. Um, it's, it doesn't happen, right? And so that's just, you know, how it works. And, and it's weird because in the college, but that leads to some weird stats. You got a guy like Peter Bear who's got plus, plus, you know, we're talking like a 75 spin rate. Um, we're talking about a guy that has spin rate not even seen in the major leagues. And he's in college and he walks a ton of guys and he punches out a ton of guys. And they're like, oh, this guy has command problems. It's like, now Peter doesn't have command problems. What he has is the fact that he throws a pitch that no one in college can hit, mm-hmm. right? So they just take. They don't swing, right? So he has all these walks or whatever because they don't swing. And then he gets the pro ball, and all of a sudden, people like to swing. It's pro ball, and he's throwing the ball around the zone, right? And all of a sudden, he's had a lot of success. And they go, wow, our projections were so off. It's like, now you're looking at the game wrong. The game has evolved on the scouting side, too. We have to look at it differently. Because guys are throwing so much harder, hitters at the bottom end of those lineups in in D1, D2, guys that are never going to play pro ball or might play a little bit in indie ball, those aren't, those aren't the people that we're scouting. So you have to adjust, right? How do the best hitters react to the best pitchers, not like how to the bottom of the lineup? If he walks the number eight, number nine hitter, that doesn't mean he has command problems. That means that maybe he's pitching in a different way or his stuff just doesn't reflect, you know, that situation doesn't reflect what he'll do in pro ball. And so that's, that's what's always really exciting to me. Well, but also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your studies also showed, you know, kind of the, the old analogy was that, well, you know, yeah, you throw harder, but throwing harder means you're more likely to have control problems. And right. Yeah, the study that we did showed that, uh, that throwing harder uh, in MLB, the, the hardest throwers had the highest zone percentages, had the most pitches inside the strike zone. Because they don't have to pitch away from the zone. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's actually what a tweet, uh, I think a Baseball America favorite some time ago, Robert Stock, he's you know playing again. Yep. And I tweeted that out, and Robert and I talk all the time. And Robert said... He's like, my command has never been better, and my velocity has never been better than this year because, uh, you know, I'm throwing 99, so it doesn't really matter if I throw it down the middle, you know. And I said, you know, and so he's like, that. it's not only just that, the truth, but also the confidence that Robert can go out there and be like, I can just throw 99 on the black, and I'm trying to hit the black, right? I'm trying to help my catcher out. I'm trying to do what my pitching coach is telling me. But if I miss over the middle, I don't feel so bad. I don't have to throw a cutter at 88 to try to move his barrel. I don't have to be so fine. I can be that powerful, that, that confident guy 
and then your command goes up. It doesn't just because you have confidence in your stuff. Right. Uh, the funny thing with that, I always go back to. I'm, had a fun time writing a story about control versus command from years ago, and the the example that always jumps out to me is is that if you got a guy like Tom Glavin who you know at the time pitched with a fringe average to average fastball and a you know outstanding changeup, and his command was actually greater than his control because he knew he couldn't catch you know at that velocity he couldn't catch the middle of the plate so he would sit on the outer half and I mean if he needed to basically be two inches off the plate on a uh, on a three two pitch he would be two inches off the plate on a three two pitch and if he walked the guy he walked the guy but he was the pitch he wanted to do wanted to execute when you're throwing ninety nine you don't worry about being two inches off the plate you worry you you trust that you can be in the zone and the hitter's probably going to have trouble with it. I mean, because even the best hitters, yes, they can catch up to 99, but it's a lot harder to catch up to 99 or 100 for anybody. Right. And, I mean, just the reduction and small reductions in velocity can make a huge difference. You talk about Tom Glavin and everybody compares his comparable today is Kyle Hendricks, right, as the right-hander. Um, and Hendricks has lost a little bit of velocity and he's gone significantly backwards. And just because, like, those guys are so susceptible to losing one to two miles an hour. If Robert Stock ends up pitching at 95 to 97, he'll probably be okay, right? Um, if a guy that's pitching at 88 goes down to 86, you're talking about a huge difference. Oh, like that. Chris Heston. I mean, just another example. Chris Heston, who, sure. when he came up, was successful, and it really came down to, like, if you look, the difference between successful big league throws a no-hitter Chris Heston and triple-A pitcher Chris Heston is about a mile an hour. I mean, that seems simple. You know, seems like no, it can't be that simple. But the margin of error for those guys is so much smaller because, I mean, again, hit the thing about it is, is the other thing I do think that happens is hitters now they see ninety five so much more often. So they, it, it's a survival of the fittest. I mean, the the way that you survive is is that you have to be able to hand, learn how to handle that. But changing speed still matters. But the reality of it is, is if you're used to catching up to 95 and all of a sudden a guy's topping out at 89, it's a very fine margin of error for them because that isn't a sweet spot for a lot of guys now. Yeah, no no question about it. Kind of by definition, if you're a rookie or young and in the big leagues, you've been exposed to that kind of velocity. And so velocity alone is not sufficient to get no. people out. But it is. It is required for most of those guys to move up. You still need to have good command. You still need to have a really good out pitch. I mean, that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing you see in today's game. Guys can't. Guys cannot survive without a plus plus out pitch uh, if they have average velocity. Um, they have to be able to have a pitch they can go to with good command that's nasty and be able to throw it any time. And those are the people that you see. Andrew Miller is probably the greatest example. Now he throws gas. Don't get me wrong. But what makes him so great is his good command. But also the fact that he throws 50% sliders and fastballs in any count. Any count but three up. You, you don't know what you're going to get. You might get a slider, you might get a fastball. And each of those pitches is nasty, don't get me wrong. But the fact that he can command both at any time, forget it. You know, that, that's, that's, that's impossible for anyone to hit. You've got an economics background that ties in a lot of times a little bit to game theory and all too. I mean, that to me is, is you just hit on it, which is, is the fascinating, the decision matrix, the game theory that you could go into just in pitch selection, which, do you guys, is that like, is that something you guys ever get into or is that something that, you know, there's, there's so many other things to work on that, that kind of getting, is that kind of something left to, uh, the, the pitcher, the catcher and the coach? No, we, we started through this year. Actually, we've, uh, we've started to hire, um, some economics, um, people with economics backgrounds. We hired a, a person named uh, Michael Schwartz. He was a graduate assistant at Seattle University. Got a little bit of baseball background. He's a bird dog for the Reds. Um, but he does a lot of his background is in finance and economics. And so we use people like that to actually do some studies on game theory and pitch selection. And that's the stuff that we're really getting into and trying to help our players. Some, some teams do a great job. Um, one of our pitchers, our big leaguers, and I want to kind of say who it is, uh, when he was with uh, the Astros, um, or when he was with the Astros, uh, he's not playing for them anymore. But he would say, you know, the Astros have these just detailed, unbelievable scouting reports based on StatCast data, TrackMan, this, that, the other thing, really match who he was. You know, he's a lefty, 88, right? And so then they compare him to lefties that are 88. And he's like, this is great. You know, this makes so much sense. And then we hear from other players that are with other organizations, and they're just getting a stock scouting report. I'm a lefty that's 88. Here's a report um, against all lefties. 
And he's just like, well, no, most lefties throw way harder than me. <laughs> so isn't this report different? And so we want to be able to help out our clients there. And then we get a lot of attention from agents because they're like, hey, this makes a lot of sense. We need to bring this expertise in. Um, and so that's kind of this year's big project is to expand on that side of the game a lot more. And so much of it has been done already. But um, again, like, like I keep hitting on, this stuff has been written about a lot for the last five, six, seven years. But it doesn't help anybody because it's written about in an academic way. It's not written about how the player can do it. How the player, Robert Stock or whatever, any of my clients can't read that article and that's, say, you know, oh, okay, now I know what to do, right? So that's that's our job. Is that a, is, I don't want to say it's a criticism. Is that a failing, though, sometimes of modern sabermetrics is that, and again, there's different audiences that you're writing for, but it's it's that ability to write is, is so key because it's that ability to distill what you essentially the being able to research is, is very valuable and very important and being able to to look at data and and determine the correct uh lessons to be learned from that data and not come into it basically and, and shoehorn it down a, a direction that you want it to go but then the next step becomes you said i mean there, there's a practical application of that as well and that, that kind of goes back to what you talk about the coaching it, the coaching is is being able to take that and actually distill it in a way that's useful for the player, which that's hard to do, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and I've, it's, a, it's something I talk about all the time when I've worked with some of the teams that have embraced um, statistical approaches, and they all basically have, but some are much further along. And, um, you know, a big failing of these teams some of the time, I'll call it what it is, it is a failing, is some of the, I don't want to jinx the book or the movie or whatever, but the Moneyball Revolution, first of all, I'm a huge nerd. You know, I've yeah. never played baseball, so I'm not denigrating nerds. Um, at the end of the day, though, I, I, I know I know you, Kyle. You're you're a nerd, <laughs> right? Thank you for vouching for me. But at the end of the day, the front dude, I was on Twitter has, with you yesterday talking about T34s versus Tigers. I am I own right. this I, as well. So yeah. that's right. When I come out to North Carolina, we definitely got to talk about that. But you know, so the nerds. At the end of the day, it sounds cliche, but the AGM, you know, the director of baseball ops, he's not the one coaching the guy in Double A, right? And so. It's, you can't hand down this information that's wholly academic, right? It is the, I don't want to call it the Moneyball Revolution or whatever. It's not anything like that. But there is less, to me, there is much less appreciation of a baseball lifer, of a guy who really understands how to coach and connect with the players, um, than there ever has been. And I, I think that that is rough because what you want is someone who has 20 years of experience in the game, 10 years of experience in the game, if that's playing, coaching, whatever, who has an open mind to something. He doesn't need to know 100% of it. He needs, he needs to know 20%. He needs to, he needs to buy in. He needs to know that you care about the players. Like that's the stuff that is really lacking in some of these organizations and they wonder why they don't have buy-in. Um, because you just can't hand a bunch of data to someone. You can't write dispassionately about nerd stuff, about sabermetrics, and then expect players to get it. You know, the Pirates do probably one of the best jobs with this. The nerds travel with the team. They hump a bus in the Midwest League or whatever. You want, you want to prove someone you care, ride an A-ball bus, you know, for half a season. Right and like actually you know show them that you really care about this stuff and you connect with the players that way you're starting to see really good results. The, the Astros are sending Sig out as a coach this year. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Sig, a very good friend of mine, I have talked to him about. I can't wait to see the results of that. That's very funny. Uh, for those who don't know, the AGM of the Astros is going to go uh, ride a bus in Georgia. The AGM of the Astros, who's worked for NASA before, is going to uh, hump a bus <laughs> yeah. in the New York Penn. Uh, yeah, I have made fun of him many times over email. I can't wait to see how that goes. Now, Sig is, I mean, and that speaks volumes to how much he cares about that stuff. You know, he's he's painted as a guy that's a track man guru, a guy that just makes decisions based on information. But that couldn't be more. That couldn't be further from the truth. Sig really cares about the human element, about how the players connect and how they get it. Like when they were talking to Dallas Keuchel when he was in the minors, when everybody gave him no shot, people like Kevin Goldstein were coming out and saying. This guy's going to pitch good for us. We really believe that. Everybody kind of made fun of Kevin. Obviously, you've known Kevin a long time. Um, and and sure enough, he's pretty good. And, and why? Because they could connect with Dallas. They said, your cutter does this, your two-seam does this. You pitch this way. We think we have a really good success. Here's the data that shows it, not just the pitching coach telling you. Dallas bought in, and he's done a great job. A guy like Colin McHugh pitched 100% differently. Colin McHugh was always living at the bottom of the zone. That's not where he's successful. Colin's got to pitch at the top of the zone uses curveball. Why? Because the data shows this. Show Colin something like that. Show him you care. Show him that you're invested in his future. He's going to listen to that kind of stuff. But you take that data to an A-ball guy and you shove it down his throat and say, this is how you have to pitch, that doesn't work. You know, a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, especially like, you know, Latin or you know, European or Australian guys coming all over the place, they don't connect that way, right? It needs to be it needs to be from a place of, from caring. So those soft skills matter today more than they ever have. I really believe that. 
Well, also, you have to be at a point where you're receptive to, I mean, a lot of times you have to hit a point where you are receptive to change because the 19-year-old pitcher who's dominated all the way up to A-ball, that's not the time for him to, to revamp necessarily right. because there's not, they're not necessarily going to be the buy-in because, well, what, you know, because they're, they're, it may be hard. It may be difficult. There may be struggles to go with it. And you're at the point where you're like, well, what I was doing before worked, but the pitcher who's hit double A and hit a hit a wall, there's a lot more receptivity because it's like, well, this isn't working, so I've got to find something else. And right. timing is is key for a lot of this, I, I believe too. Yep, absolutely. And and that you can take that even a step further, or backwards, if you want to say, and uh, target the draft, right? And that's why I think the soft skills matter so much. We're drafting. I've worked in the draft draft rooms for about four years now, working with teams. They're drafting, not all the teams, I don't want to say they all are, but they're drafting players solely based on their overall future projection um, and what their stuff is and how their command is and what they're going to be in the big leagues. Like This is like 90 to 95% to 100% of how they draft a player. And I just keep reminding them, I said, when you draft when you draft Mark Appel first overall, when you draft whoever, instead of John Gray, Chris Bryant, it doesn't matter. When you draft this guy first overall, you aren't going to coach him. The A-ball coach is going to coach him. Lancaster Jedhawks are going to coach this guy, right? And so we have to do some research. You know, the Astros are this kind of organization. They value this kind of data. They value this kind of throwing program. Does this player fit what we're trying to do? You know, and that's the stuff that is just not, it's just not talked about. It really isn't. You know, the Indians, I think, do an okay job of that, um, drafting guys like that, you know, that fit their profile. You know, the Indians are... Obviously well-known in the minors, at the upper level of the minors, and in the big leagues of having just a stream of righties throwing 95-plus that have come from Division II schools, Division I schools, NAI, all over the place. And how? Because they identify big, strong kids that maybe are in kind of slower development programs and say, here's our program. We think we have a lot of confidence in it. Let's see if it works for you. And no, no, sure, no surprise, the Akron bullpen had the highest velocity, I think, out of any single minor league affiliate ever, and potentially even the big leagues. They had every righty was throwing 95 plus out of that bullpen. It was crazy, um, and so that's that's the stuff that really matters. How do you target? The, how do you adjust the draft for that? With all this new technology and all these new training concepts, it's not cookie cutter anymore. If your organization really buys into that, I'd say there are about five of them. You really need to change the draft. You need to change who you're drafting. These players. If you really believe we can, we can develop players better than anyone ever has, then you need to target the right guys. Then the soft skills, the intangibles matter. And that's the stuff that's so far backwards, you know. And that's the that's the sixth tool, right? They always talk about. Um, I could go on forever, but that to me that's extremely important. The scout doesn't coach the player, and the coach doesn't draft the player, and that's the biggest disconnect right now in pro ball. That's <laughs> there, there, there's, there's a whole podcast on that last uh, paragraph there, because yeah, no doubt. I mean, there is because it's it is it's it's a fascinating. There, there's so many fascinating aspects of the game, but to kind of wrap up with this, the thing that also fascinates me is is that. You know, when it comes to technology, when it comes to analytics, we're so much further than we were than when I started Baseball America 15 years ago. And at the same time, we're so far from where we'll be in 15 years. I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit has been picked, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of the the, the take-up rate from someone from some team figuring something out to everyone figuring it out is much shorter now. It feels like, but that doesn't mean that there are not still edges to be found. And I think you just dropped out 10 different possibilities of edges in this, in this conversation. I mean, yeah, to finish that up, I mean, that's, that's where it's at. That's, that's the next revolution. It's, and I've been saying that for five years now. It's, we know more about the game than we ever have, and we'll know more in 15 years for sure. But, I mean, we've mined most of the easy gold. But we've done such a bad job of translating that to the field. For all the games that we have made on understanding the game, Teaching it to the minor leaguers has not been a priority, and that's that's tough. And so we're going to see that the teams that actually connect with that and figure that out, you're going to see, you'll see it. And the, you're, you're see, some of the teams that I'm working with, and teams that I'm not working with that I really like, um, they have they've got some really good A ball, double A guys that are that are sleepers. You know, when you see that, when you see uh, when I talk to Andrew Friedman forever ago with the Rays, I think this story encapsulates it. You know, I said the the, the Rays are not built by David Price when he was on the team. What, what intrigues me about the Rays is a James Shields, a Matt Moore. Why, why is Matt Moore good, right? He was a ninth rounder. Or he got paid a little over spot, I think. But he's not really that big of a prospect. How, why? Why is Matt Moore such a good pitcher? Like those are the, those are the reasons 
that will set the Rays apart with a restricted finances, right? Like that will be how your team can compete. If you can field nine Matt Moores, you know, and then spend your money on uh, Edwin Encarnacion or whatever, like a big free agent, and you feel that good about developing pitching, I mean, you'll be the first team to do it, right? And there's no teams out there yet that are doing it that to that level. Um, but I think you're going to start seeing it over the next few years for sure. I'll start with the pitchers, and then I think you'll move to the hitters for sure. It's if we're doing this in five years, I'm, I'm, you know, we'll still have uh, 20 years of, of of stuff to kind of look ahead to because it is it it keeps changing, but at the same time, it uh, there's there's never we're, we're never going to run out of of no things doubt. to kind of study, which is fun. But Kyle, I, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. I know that the listeners are going to thank you because this was a uh, a meaty hour. This was uh, this was chock full. This was two hours of podcast in one hour. So uh, yeah. No, oh, this is great. Yeah. So, really so just let on, so so let people know though. I'll let you you know kind of where that, how they can find you on Twitter. You know what the website. Uh, just let people know if they are interested in learning more about Driveline. Yeah, my Twitter is uh, at Driveline Basis. As JJ says, I'm very active <laughs> on there. Um, do do not follow <laughs> Kyle on Twitter if you are um, not okay with uh, you know if you make a comment to him, he is going to respond and. Uh, <laughs> That was a, that was always a big thing in my family. I grew up in the Midwest. You know, if you ask a question, you get an answer. That's just that's my Midwestern upbringing. That's how we are. Um, and uh, website's www.drivelinebaseball.com. Uh, my name's Kyle Bodie. I'm the founder and the director of R&D, uh, and we're out here in Seattle, Washington. So if anybody's out or wants to visit, you're more than welcome to. No charge. Uh, we love showing people around and what we got. But well, Kyle, thank you again for Kyle. I'm JJ Cooper. Great stuff, JJ and Kyle Bodie of Driveline Baseball. Thank you for joining us again, Kyle. And thank you, our listeners, and those of you who downloaded and follow the podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us at Baseball America on Twitter. Thank you for tuning in today. Our podcasts and our Facebook Lives are all sponsored by Baseballism. Visit Baseballism.com for the best apparel in baseball and enter the code BA2017 to save 20% off of your order. For JJ Cooper, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage.